He was a baker by the name of Vett. In the 16th century, Vett fled Hungary because of his Lutheran beliefs. And he ended up in central Germany. And from his lineage came folks who survived the 30 years wars. They spread throughout that region of Germany. Their name became almost synonymous with musician because of the musical ability of this family. In a genealogy compiled in 1735, one of Vett's descendants wrote with a mixture of loving amusement and pride about their forefather. He found his greatest pleasure in a little citron, a wire-stringed plucked instrument, which he took with him even into the mill and played while the grinding was going on. How pretty it must have sounded together. Yet in this way, he had a chance to have time drilled into him. And this was, as it were, the beginning of a musical inclination in his descendants. The great-great-grandson of Vett who wrote these words was none other than Johann Sebastian Bach. Vett's last name was Bach. Bach is arguably one of the greatest composers in the history of Western music, a man whose staunch Lutheran faith informed his life, his career, and his view of music. He believed that music was a refreshment of the spirit, as, uh, as some of his title pages stated. He believed that music was a powerful tool for the proclamation of the gospel as his cantatas, passions, organ chorales, and other compositions clearly showed. And ultimately, Bach believed that music brought glory to God. And it was such a part of who he was that if you would find his works, you would find at so many, many of them at the bottom were three initials, S. D G Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. It was part of his understanding not only of music but of life. And it was one of the statements that came to encapsulate the whole Reformation movement to the glory of God alone. But it's not just a Reformation truth. It is a biblical truth that life is to be be lived in recognition of and in response to the glory of God. The psalmist said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The New Testament picks up on that theme again and again and again. Paul wrote these words, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. The, the, the glory of God is, is central in Scripture. It is to be central in our life. It was certainly a central truth of the Reformation. And yet, a lot of times we don't talk about the glory of God. Or if we talk about it, we're not even exactly sure what we're talking about. It just sounds like kind of church language or something you're supposed to say or, or do or use, but we're not exactly 100% sure how it impacts our life. And And what I hope that we'll discover today is that this is not just merely some high-minded theological jargon, but the glory of God is, is central to how we view life and how we live life. And that's why it was one of those core statements that grew out of the Reformation, the glory of God. And so I want to try to break this down a little bit. And I do so with a little fear and trepidation because there is no way, no way that my best words on my best day could begin to plumb the depth of this subject or do justice to this topic. But I hope at least to give you a little more to chew on, maybe clarify a few misconceptions and talk about how does that impact our lives. So let's start with the most basic question of all. What is the glory of God? I mean, we talk about it, we read about it, we hear it in songs, but what exactly is the glory of God? And to answer that question, I think it's helpful to think in terms of kind of two aspects of this. The first aspect is internal. It's internal. This internal aspect of the glory of God really is who he is. It's the idea that God's glory encompasses the greatness, the beauty, and the perfection of all all that God is. The glory of God is the greatness of God, the perfection of God, and all that he says, and all that he does, and all that he is. Everything that is God is, is part of his glory. The glory of God internally, it's, it's true about God, whether you and I would ever recognize it or not. It is the greatness and the perfection of God. One of the Hebrew words most commonly translated glory is the Hebrew word kabod. And kabod has the root meaning of heavy in weight. And it carries that idea of weightiness, that there is nothing of greater importance. There is nothing that should carry greater weight in our life than who God is. There is nothing weightier than God. The glory of God is his perfection in all that he is, all that he says, and all that he does. And again, my words are are woefully inadequate at this point. And so this morning, I'm going to give you tons of scripture because my hope is God's word, it may speak to this far, far, far better than my words will. And so what I want to ask you to do is, is this morning, let some of these words from God's word just kind of wash over you a little bit. Let them speak into your life, maybe anew and afresh, about the glory of God. And one great example of that is in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, 
Most of us, when we think of Isaiah 40, we think of the last couple verses, verses 30 and 31 that, that talk about uh, running and not uh, getting uh, faint or weary and, and mounting up with wings like eagles. And those are great promises at the end of that chapter, but they're built upon the declaration of the greatness of God. And so what I'm going to ask you to do this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, follow along with me. But I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read this aloud. And I'm just going to invite you to allow God's Word to kind of wash over you just a little bit this morning. And just hear these words that try to begin to to grasp a, a little bit of the weightiness, the greatness, and the glory of God. I'm going to begin in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and it casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who will we compare to the greatness of God? The greatest part of creation is like dust in his hand. The greatest of nations wither before him. The glory of God is internal. It is, it is who God is and his greatness and his beauty and the perfection of all of his attributes. 
But there's another aspect to the glory of God when you come to Scripture. It's not just who God is, but it, there's an external component to that. An external component it is kind of the, the manifestation of God. It is God revealing himself. Sometimes God's glory is used to refer to the brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. And you see those pictures in Scripture of kind of the, the brightness of God or a, a consuming fire. Artists often try to uh, capture kind of the, the presence of God with, with a bright light. And again, we're just going to kind of let God's Word do the heavy lifting here because I just want to walk you through. And again, we could, we could be here now until jingle jams over tonight just walking through scriptures about how, how God's glory is, is on display, how it's manifested, how it, it shines forth. But let me just highlight a few by, by way of whetting your appetite and maybe even uh, getting you to think and read scripture a little bit differently in the days and weeks ahead. It begins even with creation, that creation declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And, and some of us know this even instinctively. If we had never read a psalm, we would understand because some of us love to be in the mountains, right? Some of us love to be at the beach and, and look at the horizon. Some of us, some of us get beyond the uh, light pollution and we, we stand out in a, a star-filled night, a clear sky, and, and there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of, of wonder at the, the greatness of creation, but creation is designed to point us beyond, beyond creation to the Creator. The creation declares the glory of God. God manifested His glory throughout the history of the Hebrew people as He rescued them out of Egypt. He went before them in that, that manifestation, a, a pillar of, of cloud and of fire. When the tabernacle came together, God's glory appeared. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, that, that, that manifestation of the, the presence of God, like Mount Sinai, that, that you couldn't go up to it because of the greatness of who God was, and these, these pictures, these external representations of the greatness of God. It wasn't just in the tabernacle, but when the, the temple was dedicated by Solomon, you kind of see that, that same theme of this manifestation of the glory of God. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. When you encounter powerfully a manifestation of the glory of God, you, you bow 
You worship. You are humbled. You are in awe. You are overwhelmed by the greatness of who God is. And of course, one of the clearest manifestations of the glory of God was Jesus Christ himself. And the author of Hebrews describing Jesus put it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God, that theme of brightness, of shining forth, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Jesus Christ, we have, have God's glory taking on human form. And, and throughout his life, you would see glimpses of that, the transfiguration, the, the glory of God, and the, the brightness of the, of the white and the light described there, the manifestation of the glory of God. We're coming upon the Christmas season, right? At the very announcement of the birth of Christ, we have have hints about this brightness, this shining forth of the glory of God. You remember how Luke recorded it in Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Oh, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. At the very announcement of Christ, there was this connection of the, with the glory of God. And certainly most powerfully, perhaps, God's glory, and this is where it ties most closely into the Reformation, God's glory is, is manifest, shows forth in our salvation. When Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he talked about the connection between our salvation and God's glory. In Him, in Christ Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That when we are reconciled to God, when we come to God through faith in Christ Jesus, it is through the glory and the honor and the praise of God. Because it's not based on our merit. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our, our good deeds. But it's based on the love, the mercy, the grace, the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ. And so if I can try to tie all these five solas together, they all tie together around justification, how we have this right relationship with God. We are justified before God by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone, through the means or the instrument of faith alone, for the ultimate glory of God alone, as taught with a final and decisive authority in Scripture alone. 
of the glory of God ties all of these solas together around this theme of salvation. And of course, the glory of God is going to be central in our lives throughout all eternity. Revelation gives us a glimpse. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The brightness of the glory of God as it, as it manifests, as it shows forth externally. We don't need a sun or a moon because of the greatness of the glory of God and the brightness of it showing forth. So what is the glory of God? Internally. It is the, the perfection, the greatness of all that He is, all that He says, all that He does externally. It is, it, is, it is showing forth. It is God manifesting himself, and it's often represented in brightness or in light or in displays of great power. So that is how the Scripture uses the glory of God, which leads to the second question then. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to glorify God? We hear a lot about that. Not only the glory of God, but how do we glorify God? What does it mean to glorify God? It basically means to give God the honor he is due. To give God the honor that he is due. Now, let me make a very important clarification here. We do not add to God's glory. To glorify God doesn't mean we add to his glory. He is already glorious. He is already perfect. There is nothing that you and I can ever do that will add to his glory. We recognize it. We acknowledge it in our response. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking, wow, this is all pretty high-minded, But does it really make any difference tomorrow morning? And I'm going to tell you, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Because we we are hardwired for glory. We're hardwired. And we will, we seek glory. we, We seek out glory. And if we give ultimate glory to anyone or anything other than God, not only does it dishonor God, but it distorts our understanding, our perception of reality. It not only distorts our perception of reality, but out of that distortion, we begin to to seek out glory and satisfaction and joy in lesser things. And that leads to disappointment. It leads to dissatisfaction. It sometimes leads to to destruction in our relationships and in various facets of our life. The glory of God is, is central. To be fully human is to be fully recognizing and responding to the glory of God. It is how God designed you and I to live. Whenever I substitute a lesser glory, then I am 
distorting reality. I am, I am setting myself on a pathway that is at odds with how God created me to be. To be fully human is to fully relate to, fully respond to the glory of God. Every other thing. And listen, we, we, we can be in awe. I mean, you see a great athletic performance and you're just like, whoa. You, you see just a majestic sight in creation. You go, whoa. Maybe you hear some music and, and it just even brings tears to your eyes. So powerful. Those are all clues. All of those things are to point us beyond the thing to the giver of that thing, to God. And you stand, some of you have had those moments. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon in person, right? It's like, wow, wow. But that all, that wow, is to point you beyond that which you see to the God who made it all possible. And we're going to circle back to that in just a few moments. To glorify God means to give him the honor that he is due. He is the heaviest importance to allow him to respond to him is that which has the highest value. So how do I do that? How do you do that? Well, again, we could go on and on and on because... The scripture says in everything we do, we're to glorify God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, so whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Oh, one level, everything that we say, everything that we think, everything that we say and do, all of that is to be to the glory of God. All of that is to be a response that honors God. But how how do we begin to get a grip on that? Well, again, we could go on and on and on. So I'll just give you the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg today. I'm just going to throw out four thoughts. And I could have easily added 40 more. Uh, But four thoughts. Four, at least maybe beginning places to prime the pump, so to speak. For you to begin to think about practically, how do I live my life in a way that recognizes the greatness of God, that responds appropriately to the glory of God? And we do that, first of all, by our faith. By our faith. When we respond to God in faith, it brings Him honor. It honors Him. It honors His Word. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he talked about in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God find their fulfillment. All the the promises of of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And our response, our yes to that, our amen to that brings glory to God. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen, our yes we agree to God. God for his glory. 
When I respond with a yes to the promises of God, when I walk and live my life in reliance upon the promises of God, I bring honor, I bring glory to God. We looked earlier in this Sola series to Paul's use of Abraham as an example of one who lived, operated by faith. And notice the connection between his response of faith and bringing glory to God. No unbelief talking about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Listen, when you and I operate in our life like God's word can be trusted, God is fully able to do what he has promised to do. When I walk in obedience because I trust his direction, I trust his provision, I trust his timing. When I walk in that way, fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised to do, I bring him honor. I bring him glory. I am honoring who God is in all of his perfection. When I live my life by faith, when I respond to Jesus Christ in that initial faith, I am bringing honor and glory to God. We honor and glorify Him when we operate by faith. We honor Him and bring glory to Him by our worship. By our worship. Again, you see this theme throughout the Scripture. Let's go Old and New Testament for examples. The psalmist said, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. That it was going to be central to who he was, not only all the days of his earthly life, but forever. And we get a glimpse of that in Revelation of what is yet to to come. Worship is going to be a central component of that. Worthy are the loud voices around the throne. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There's this this response of, of worship because we recognize the worth of God. Worship at its core is me responding with all that I am, my heart, my mind, my soul, my emotions, my body, everything, responding with all that I am to all that God has shown me of who He is, all that He has revealed to me about Himself. The more I understand about myself, the more I understand about God, the greater and richer my worship goes. Listen, on a sheerly human level, it doesn't make sense to worship, right? It doesn't make sense to say one day out of seven, pause, and really fix my thoughts around God. It doesn't make sense. We got things to do. We got things to achieve. We got things to enjoy, right? But, but, if, if God is the greatest, if God is ultimate, if God is the highest 
value, then it makes absolute sense. Absolute sense to pause, to worship, to reorient my life around the reality of God and the truthfulness of His Word, to be captured again by the greatness of God. When the glory of God is diminished in our life, we'll begin to see worship being diminished in our lives. Other things will become more important. We'll have time for this and this and this and this and this, but we won't time, have time to worship God. The glory of God. We glorify God as we recognize and honor Him and respond to Him in worship. By our faith, by our worship, by our service, by our service. So I continue to prime the pump here for glorifying God and all that we, we do by our service. As we serve others, we serve God by serving others, we can bring honor and glory to God. This is how Peter talked about it. As each has received a gift, use it. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Sometimes when we think about serving, we, we think about, well, it's just, it's just filling a need. It's just, maybe it's just helping somebody else, or it's in a church, it's filling a spot on an org chart, or whatever it might be. But, but to orient our lives around the glory of God is to recognize the capacity to serve. The gifts, the skills, the talents, the education, all those things, the experiences that I bring to bear is not just for me, but it, it is an opportunity to serve other people. And I honor the giver of all of those gifts when I use them to serve people created in His image. When I use those gifts to, to serve people who matter to Him. And it not only meets a need, it not only does something in me, but it brings honor and glory and praise to God. My service is not just about doing a good deed to somebody else. It's not just about filling a role because nobody else will do it. It's about bringing honor and glory to God, there's, there's, there's an increased ennoblement of service when we understand it's not just about what it does for me or for others, but it is a way for me to give honor to God by our faith, by our worship, by our service, by our satisfaction and our joy. By our satisfaction and our joy. What is it that we find the greatest satisfaction in? What is it that we find our, our greatest depths of joy in? It is to ultimately be God. The psalmist said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
more. That we are to find this, this deepest satisfaction, the deepest joy of our life in God, in our relationship with Him, in recognizing the, the greatness of who He is, of, of appropriately responding to the greatness of all that God is. To be fully human is to respond fully to the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism that kind of grew out of this Reformation movement put it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper, perhaps uh, best known in this generation of, of recapturing this, this thought, he talks about it is right to say our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. He goes on to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied, when we are most finding our joy in Him. Listen, there are a lot of things in life that bring us joy. There are a lot of things in life that maybe we find satisfaction in, a job well done, pouring into somebody's life. Maybe just having a day where you get to pursue a hobby or whatever it may be that you just, you just love. You find satisfaction in that. If that is the highest satisfaction, then we've missed the point. All of those joys, all of those satisfactions are signposts. They're designed to point us beyond the thing itself to the giver of that thing. They're designed to point us to God so that ultimately some of those things may come or go in our life. We may not get to enjoy that. We may not get to have that always in our life, but we find our deepest satisfaction, our deepest joy is in God, in the goodness and the greatness and the love and the mercy in the provision of our glorious God. And it's not enough just to recognize that, but to find joy in that, to rejoice in that. Jonathan Edwards, some would argue perhaps the greatest of American theologians, put it this way, God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Some of us never get beyond the point of looking at God Even looking at our relationship with God is more duty than delight. God designed us and desires us to find our deepest satisfaction and our deepest joy, not in a temporary circumstance or situation, but in our God, in the greatness and the glory of our God. Now, as I try to tie this series together, I, I want to just try to remind you that when we're talking about these Reformation truths, including to God alone be the glory, it's not just about one man in one moment. It's not just about Martin Luther nailing some theses to a church door 500 years ago in 1517. But every generation 
must fight for those Reformation truths. Every generation is called to live out those realities, to to come again and to battle for them. So sometimes stand against drift in the church or in the culture at large, to be men and women who take delight in the glory of God, who stand firmly upon the truth of God's Word. It is never going to be popular. It is not always going to be applauded. It may at times make your life incredibly difficult in the short term, but it is the life of reformation that you and I are continually called to live for and fight for at times and battle for along the way. 150 years after Luther nailed those theses, the battle for Reformation truth continued. Let me share with you just one story, and I hope maybe it'll challenge you as it's challenged me to think about how am I living? How am I living out these truths for the glory of God? Hugh McHale, I shared this story with our staff earlier this week. Hugh McHale was a bright young man who preached the outlawed Reformation truth in Scotland, but not for long. He was licensed to preach at 20. He preached his last message at 21, saying, The people of God have been persecuted, sometimes by Ahab on the throne, sometimes by a Haman in the state, and sometimes by a Judas in the church, drawing on those biblical pictures. That very day, Scottish authorities, Ahab, Haman, and Judas, came after him, forcing him to flee for safety. His capture was inevitable, and his trial occurred November 28, 1666. When he refused to recant, he was affixed in a chair with a tight iron boot enclosed around his leg and knee. An iron wedge was inserted, and a jailer stood by with a sledgehammer awaiting his orders. A surgeon sat near, his thumb on the young man's pulse. The judge nodded. The jailer gripped the mallet, took aim, and slammed it down on the wedge. Bone and muscle were crushed. A second blow, a third Blood ran down Hugh's leg and dripped from his toes. More blasts of pain. The eleven blows crushed Hugh's leg to a pulp. Radiating waves of agony surged through every inch of his body. Rough hands then jerked him from his chair and threw him into the dungeon. Some days later, asked how his leg felt, Hugh smiled dismally and said, He had stopped worrying about his leg and had started worrying about his neck. And he had reason. He was shortly taken to the gallows and forced to climb a ladder to the platform. A large crowd gathered and Mikhail, raising his voice, said, I care no more to go up this ladder than if I were coming home to my father's house. He awkwardly dragged his useless leg up the rungs, turning and saying, Every step is a degree nearer heaven. 
at the top. He took out his pocket Bible and read from its last chapter and spoke of Christ. The rope tightened around his thin neck. His boyish smile faded from the earth and his feet danced in the air until his soul ascended to God. 21 years old. In every generation, there is a crying need for men and women who will stand unapologetically upon truth, who will recognize dangerous drift in their own life, in the church, or in the culture. And with love in their heart, with an emboldening that comes through the Holy Spirit, they will live and speak for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul, writing from a prison to the beloved Philippians, confident that he would get out, but knowing ultimately he may lose his life, put it this way, verse 20 of chapter 1, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. May God raise up a mighty movement of men and women who will live passionately for His glory, stand courageously on His truth, will lovingly serve the world as they honor God in all that they say and do. May you and I be counted among that number. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Oh, Father, I feel so inadequate to teach on a subject like this, the glory of God. And so, Father, I just humbly ask again in these moments that you would take your word and quicken it to our hearts. Lord, would you take these moments and just remind us again of the greatness of our God? Lord, would you help us to find our deepest joy, our deepest satisfaction, not in the things that pass, not in who won a game or, or, or what my income is or what present I get, Father, but all of those things would just would point us way beyond to the goodness and the greatness of our God. And Father, would you help us, whether in pleasure or pain, whether in sickness or health, whether in abundance or poverty, whether in life or death, 
to so live that we bring honor and glory to the most glorious one of all. I'm just going to invite you to this.